0: Well, if you'll find Revelation, Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, the church in Sardis. Verse 1, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Father, we we pray that you help us understand this. All of your word is important. Everything that you tell us in your Word is important. Sometimes there there are issues in your Word that we see and what you've revealed that have a particular importance at a particular time. Help us be discerning here. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Form over substance. One of the things that, that I have noticed in, in teaching and being in the classroom. And um, I, you know, I hear a lot about, you know, well, this generation doesn't do this, and this generation can't do that, and that this generation their attention spans down to like under ten seconds now. You know, it's just it's like, you know, crazy. Uh, statistics and the screen times and all this stuff, but one of the things that i found is that they respond they respond to something genuine authentic they respond to something with substance they see through form over substance and the teachers that have the most trouble in the classrooms are the ones who their whole approach to teaching is form over substance and there is no respect there. And they are the, usually the ones that have the most issues in classroom management and so forth. But for some reason, when, when, they, when they see something with a little substance, and it's not perfection, they're not looking for perfection. When they see something with some substance, they tend to gravitate towards that. I think they're genuinely looking for that, seeking that. Now, they're looking in a lot of crazy places and they're not finding it. And they think sometimes they find it, but they haven't. But this whole issue of form over substance, you think of what we talk about now about traditional values, you know, cultural norms. When we were raising our kids, and we've lived in different places in the country. And we've seen some you know, different cultures of the country, and, they, and there are. There are cultural norms in different places, things that are set, accepted, things that aren't accepted. And Growing up in the South is one thing. But when we were raising our kids, one of the things we insisted on, and, it, and the reason was because it's the way we were raised. And I remember early on as a parent having to think through that and think, well, why were we raised that way? And one of the things, just a simple one, but one of the things was that we insisted on yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir. I mean, that's the way I was raised. It's what you say. And so there would be situations where, you know, we would correct our kids when they were young and we would say, now, what do you say? And everybody would go, yes, ma'am. And there were times when somebody would say, oh, no, 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 they don't need to do that. No, we you know that's not, and I, I would just have to politely say as their father, well, I'm sorry, but this is not offensive. We're not being offensive. They're not being offensive. They're not uh, disrespecting you. In fact, the reason why we want them to say that is because they need to understand their place. They need to understand that they are children, and that there are adults, and there's a difference, and that a simple yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir, is a way in which they are showing respect to you as an adult. And usually the conversation would, oh, okay, it's all right, and this or that. And we, we had to have that conversation several times. But in that, I, I, I've thought over the years, how many times have we just gone through, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, no, sir, no, sir, why? Why do you say that? It's just you're, what's what you're supposed to say. You don't say it, it gets hit upside the head. And, you know, they're going, why do we say that? It's just one example of where, I'll give you another one when it comes to laws. When it comes to laws that are on our books. For instance, I'll give you a big one, murder. I mean, why is murder wrong? Is it just a cultural thing? Have we just decided as a culture that we're just not going to kill each other? I mean, there are people that look at it that way. And there are people that look at our laws that way that they are just sort of constructs of society. It's whatever society gets together and decides these are going to be the laws. In other words, there's really form over substance, and particularly when it comes to murder. Why is murder wrong? It's because of the Bible. What the Bible tells us very clearly, after the first murder, and that we were created in the image of God, and that when you murder another human being, you are destroying the image of God. And therefore, that's why and. Just about every culture and every murder is wrong. But see, we we lose that substance and we hold on to a form and people react differently to it. Some people just check out of it. Some people are looking for all kinds of things and they're like, I don't like this anymore. It's just kind of, you know, this, this form over substance and what I'm experiencing is nothing but this dead situation where there seems to be no life in it. We're just following rules and regulations and, and it's just this, I don't know, and and people check out of that. People look for other things, you know. They try to find something that's going to satisfy it. But I think deep down, deep down, because the way God's created us in His image and the fact that He's placed eternity within our hearts and the knowledge of Him is within us as His creation, I think there's this this deep-seated yearning for the genuine Now, as believers, we know what that is. And as believers, we found it in Christ, right? But just think of the unbelieving world. And they're seeking it and they're turning to it in all kinds of ways. And they think they found it and then it leaves them empty. Then they go on to the next thing and it leaves them empty. Then they go on to the next thing and it leaves them empty. And you know what's sad is that there are churches that are feeding that. They're feeding their felt needs. And when those churches do that, they get a reputation. They get a name. And a lot of times, the name is, man, they're alive. They're attracting a lot of people. They're alive. But what they're doing is they're feeding these felt needs, and they're not really dealing with any substantive real issue of a sinful heart before a holy and righteous God. In fact, some of them have gone as far as to say we'll never talk about sin. It's too controversial. You want to hear anything negative here? It's all positive and upbeat. You have a name. You're alive. But actually, you're dead. You're dead when it comes to what Christ considers and what Christ looks at. It looks alive, but it's really dead. Uh, look at Matthew 23. Jesus. Jesus deals with this as He's ripping into the scribes and the Pharisees. It was the same with them. Matthew chapter 23. Verse 27. This, this section in Matthew 23 is just these woes. There's seven of them. These woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. And and look, he's not, he's not preaching here to win friends and influence people. He's not preaching here for a return engagement. He's letting them have it. He sees it. And he's letting them have it. And in verse 27, he says this to them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Now, when Jesus said, woe to you, it... it You better stop and listen, because it's usually not very good here. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness so you also outwardly appear righteous to others. But within, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I don't want to be described like that. Do you? I don't want to be what Jesus is saying here. You look like these whitewashed tombs, and that's what they would do to the tombs to make them look beautiful. You know, look. You know, you look at it on the outside. And you go, "Wow, man, that's beautiful." If I want, I want to be buried in that one, man. Look at that. No, that one. Look at that. That's beautiful. But inside, what's really inside? Dead men's bones. That's what's inside. And then he takes this and he says, "This is what you're like. You appear righteous to men. You appear right. You appear alive." Well, what's really on the inside is unrighteousness, lawlessness. What's really on the inside is a heart that really could care less about following Christ. What's really on the inside is a heart that says, I'm going to do my own thing. I don't care what God says. I don't care what his word says. I don't care what the gospel says. I'm going to live my life my own way. I'm going to do my own thing. Unrighteousness, lawlessness. Well, that's not not the way we were created to live. That's not the way it was supposed to be. Sin brought that about. But that's not the way it was supposed to be in the beginning. And through the entrance of sin, God then saves us from that sin through Christ. He saves us from that. It doesn't have to be that way. So there's this disconnect that happens between appearance and reality. The appearance of something, there can be a disconnect between that and the reality of it. It can happen to us personally. It can happen individually in our walks with Christ. It can happen that way. It can happen corporately. It can happen to a church. We're dealing with a church here in the church at Star, in Sardis. Ease. Things are easy. Things are good. We, we're really not worried about you know, persecution. We're not really threatened by false teaching or anything like that. We begin to lose focus a little bit. Things begin to slip a little bit. We begin to redefine substance. So that we start to redefine things that we've held to. That we knew these were some of the pillars and grounds of faith, truth, and so forth. And it all starts to get redefined and jumbled up. And pretty soon, there's nothing. But we're holding to an appearance. We're going to meet on Sunday morning. Doors will be open. Lights will be on. We'll sing. We'll offer prayers. We'll have a sermon, maybe, maybe not. We'll all shake hands, greet one another, hug each other's neck, and go on about our business. And walk away some Sundays going, man, wasn't that good? Wasn't that good? I don't want form over substance. I don't want that. I don't want that for us. I want something genuine, something real, something that actually changes my life. The only thing that does that is the gospel. The only thing that does that is the word of God. That's it. That's it. It's the only thing. So if this is possible, then what do we do? If it's possible, what do we do? How do we guard against it? How do we snap out of it if it's happened? I think these questions are answered here in this letter to this church. And I really, if we look at it, we can kind of look at it kind of as a three-step process. One, the first step is there's got to be a diagnosis here. We have to properly diagnose this. Let's think of it like a medical diagnosis. You've got to diagnose what's the issue. I don't know, something's wrong, something doesn't feel right, something doesn't seem right. Okay, then what's the problem here? We've got to diagnose it. And then if we diagnose it and say, ah, that's the problem, then we've got to apply the right treatments. Right? You got to do the right things. You got to apply the right treatment. And then, and then the third step here is to understand and come back to, to an understanding of our safety and our security in Christ. Because when I feel not. Safe and secure because the economy is good, and safe and secure because my neighbor's not trying to kill me because I'm a Christian, and safe and secure because we're not dealing with false teaching. I'm talking about safe and secure because there is a Savior in Jesus Christ, and I know Him. And He knows me. And that safety and security is regardless of what my neighbors may try to do, or think, or say, or whatever. Right? So, we're into the churches in Revelation. This is the church at Sardis. So, if we're going to diagnose it. And this, what's interesting, is you notice here, with all the other churches, we've been following good, bad, and then these promises, right? This one's flipped. Bad, good, somewhat good. Then we get to the promises. But, let's, let's continue on our little journey here. So if we were to leave Thyatira and we were to go to about 30, go about 30 miles or so southeast of Thyatira, we will come to a small little city called Sardis. There it sits, sort of situated in the hills. And man, we'd look at it and we'd notice one of the first things we'd notice is, man, this city sits up in these hills and we would notice the sharp rock cliffs on the sides And we would notice and inspect and look and see, man, those are loose rocks, but man, they are sheer cliffs. And we would notice there's only one way into this city, and it's to the south of the city, and it's this small, narrow, little strip of land. It's the only way to get into the city. All the other sides of the city, sheer, steep cliffs, and man, it just looks like it would scream out at us, fortress. Man, there's no way an army could take this. And can you imagine trying to go up that and we would look at it and see? And we'd also notice at the junction, there's these five roads. There's a, there's a junction of five roads, and then here's the city sitting up here, smaller city. And we would notice sort of just below it on another hill or so would be the ruins of the old city. This city, Sardis, was one of the one of the chief places in the Lydian kingdom. It was a a wealthy city early on sort of the history of the cities some myths kind of grew up with this but it was a wealthy city and gold was at the center of the wealth of the city according to myths and sometimes legends and so forth but it was the perfect fortress i mean it was the perfect fortress in the sixth century bc again sardis it was the capital of the lydian kingdom Later, Sardis was the center of the Persian government. This city was only captured twice in its history. It was only captured by an invading army twice. And when you look at it and you go, wow, I see why. Just a casual assault on this city won't work. It was taken in 549 B.C. by Cyrus, Persian. Then again, it was taken in 218 B.C. by Antiochus the Great. They did it the same way, basically. What they did is they scaled the sheer cliffs at night. And the people in Sardis had put all their fortifications on the narrow strip of land to the south. And they said there's no way. There's nobody is ever going to make it over these sheer cliffs and invade, you know, and take the city and particularly at night, that's suicide. And so they were sound asleep. Sound asleep. All their fortifications in one area. Cyrus takes it, and Tigus the Great takes it. Same way. Same way, and the city falls. And again, this is a wealthy city. The people were known by their luxurious, their loose lifestyles. There was pagan worship. They had a had a temple to Sibyl there. In Roman times, em- emperor worship was rampant in Sardis. Just like with all the cities during the Roman times. This city was living off past glory. The glory of this city was in the past. It was on the decline. Last week, Thyatira was a progressive city on the rise. Sardis declining. And they're living off past glory. And the city as a whole is sound asleep. Rocked asleep in this cradle of security and so forth. And in this city is a little church. And this church is sound asleep. It's sound asleep and it's got some issues. And Jesus addresses these issues. Well, let's diagnose the issue here. First, proper... Diagnosis. Notice what he says in the beginning of this. Again, it's the similar pattern that he uses at the beginning of these letters to the angel in the church at sardis write. this is a command write these words the words of him who has the seven spirits of god and the seven stars the seven spirits we've already seen revelation chapter one verse four seems to be as we dealt with there seems to be some reference to holy spirit here notice the number seven seven spirits seven stars these angels this comes from verse 16 of chapter one we dealt with that there The number seven, completion, perfection. This is the one who's speaking to you. It is Christ. It is the Lord of the church. He's speaking to you. And this is what he says. Here comes the diagnosis. I know your works. I know again completely. I know the language is such, the tense of the verbs is such here, or the tense of the verb here is such that he knows completely. He knows fully. I know your deeds. First, you have a name that you're alive. You probably have a lot of social things. Wednesday night, we sort of kicked this around, and I, I read this, and I said, now what would this look like? And everybody's pretty much agreed, you know, the way it would look would be this. Let's say a church today that would fit this. You know, have a name that's alive, but really you are dead. A lot of social stuff, a lot of activities, a lot of things going on, you know, throughout the week and all this, and it, it would look like, man, there's a lot going on there. Man, they're doing a lot buzz about it, good reputation among the people in the community and so forth. But he says, you have a name that you're alive, but you are dead. Now, he's, he's using figurative language here. Understand that. What does this look like? What would this look like? We have some pictures of this in the Old Testament. One of the places where we have a picture of this is in Isaiah chapter 1 when you read through the opening words of Isaiah's prophecy, and you get down to about verse 10, I mentioned this Wednesday night, he calls Israel Sodom and Gomorrah. And he goes through and he gives this description about how everything was business as usual. Man, they brought sacrifices, they did this, incense, they did all this, the prayers. Man, when it came time to worship, and when it came time to do, man, the show was going on. It was happening. And if you were just a casual observer of that, you would say, man, these people are serious. Holy smoke, look what they're doing. Man, the priest is dressed. Sacrifices are handled in the right way. The prayers are said at the right time. The incense is burning just right. Man, they're singing the right music. They're doing this and they're doing that. and Man, they got it going on. And yet, God says, you're wearing me out. You're wearing me out. I didn't require this, this, this form over substance from you. And he goes on and he talks about things like justice and mercy. In other words, his point there is you're going through all of this, but inside are dead men's bones. Inside you're full of hypocrisy. Because you put on a good show and then you go live as you please. Amos, in Amos chapter 5, there's another picture of this. It's a similar picture. And Amos goes as far as, God goes as far as in Amos chapter 5 as he's describing this scene and you're wearing the carpet and the temple out. God goes as far as to say, I hate this. I despise it. And he goes on and he talks about things like mercy and justice and where is that? We see it there. I want you to go to Galatians just a second. Go to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. In Galatians chapter 4, beginning at verse 8, Paul's writing, he says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless element, elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days... And months, and seasons, and years. You've got this form. But in your heart, you're yearning to go back to the idolatry that you were saved out of. He says, I'm afraid. I may have labored over you in vain. I'm afraid for you. Because you've got the forms here and you're you're going through this and observing and thinking all this is making you right. And it's not. The issue here is your heart. Go to Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. We see this again with him. He's making this personal. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2 verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, and severity of the body. They have have this form. And they look great. They look right. Do you see what he says about them? They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Again, they can't touch your heart. Stopping the indulgence of the flesh? Then we could go on to Second Timothy chapter 3 where Timothy is, where Paul is talking to Timothy and he's talking about having a form of godliness but denying its power. You see, what can it look like when Jesus says to Sardis, hey, look, you got a name that you're alive but you're really dead. Outwardly, it can look pretty Impressive. But inwardly, the heart can be just as cold and dead, full of dead men's bones. I don't want to have a name that we're alive, but yet we're dead, because form over substance... Cannot help you live in this sinful world on a daily basis. It can't help you overcome evil. It can't help you overcome temptation. It can't help you overcome the indulgences of your own flesh. (coughs) Dealing with your felt needs continually. Cannot help you deal with the sinfulness of our hearts. And when we do that and we allow just to go on, do as you please, live as you please, we're dead. We're dead. And so Jesus says, here's the diagnosis. You've got to name that you're alive, but, but you're dead. Then comes the treatment that he prescribes. I know your works, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And then verse 2, here's the first thing. Wake up. Wake up. You're asleep. Wake up. Strengthen what remains as it is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in, my, in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it. Repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white. For they are worthy. You need to wake up. You need to be watching. The city was asleep. Can you imagine when Cyrus came up over that cliff? First ones to wake up and look and say, Oh my gosh. Guess what? We've been had. As a church, wake up. You need to wake up. You need to be watching. You need to be strengthening. Strong commands here. The things that remain. You see, it's about to die. But here's the thing. There is hope. There is hope because there's still some things. This is what Jesus is telling Sardis. There's still some things. Now, when he mentions a few people, what's interesting is that with Pergamos and Thyatira, there are only a few people who were giving in to the teaching. Here, there are only a few people that are being faithful. But they're not threatened by persecution. We don't read that. They're not threatened by false teaching. We don't read that. They're apathetic, they're living on past glory, they're living on past grace. And if you're not careful, you'll do that. And if I'm not careful, I'll do that. Man, God's grace was great last week. Man, He got me through. You know, it's amazing what God did last week. I think I'll coast this week. I think I'll just coast this week. I got a lot going on this week. I think some of that will carry over, right? You see how subtle it is? see how dangerous it can be? His mercies are new every morning. Every day brings a new challenge. Every morning brings a new challenge. And I can't just look on past glory and past grace and say, wow, man, I think I'll feast on that for a month or two. No, we give Him thanks for it and we move on. Wake up, be watching, strengthen what remains. Remember, look at what he says here. Remember what you have heard. Remember. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. I've not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember what you received. Remember what you heard. What is it they received? What is it that they heard? It was the teachings of Christ. It was the gospel. It was the teachings of Christ handed to the apostles and through the apostles handed to them and through them handed to us in his word. This is what we've received. This is what we have heard. You better remember it. You better. Because if you don't, man, apathy's going to rock you to sleep. And the next thing you know, you're going to wake up and go, what in the world happened? How would this happen? But notice what he says after remember what you've received and what you've heard. Keep it. Keep it. It's present tense, so keep, keep on keeping it in a sense. And then he says, repent. Repent. Turned. Wake up, turn. You this is sin. This is not okay. You need to repent of this. And then here comes a warning. If you will not wake up, he says, if you don't wake up, I'm going to come like a thief. We've seen the language of thief before. Paul used the language of a thief in connection with the second coming. And all these means here is that Jesus isn't sort of tiptoeing around. What he means is it's unexpected. You don't know when the thief's going to break in. When he comes back, is that what he's talking about here, his second coming? Or is he talking coming in some special judgment? Or is it the second coming? But whenever it happens here, when Paul's talking about the second coming to the Thessalonians, it's going to be like a thief in the night. It's unexpected. You better be watching all the time. You better be awake all the time. You better be remembering all the time. Because when he comes, it's going to be sudden, it's going to be unexpected. I don't want to be found asleep. I don't want us as a church to be found asleep. Carrying on business as usual, form over substance. I don't want that. I don't think you do either. I don't think you do either. So he's coming in this, this, this unex, une, unexpected nature of him, of him coming. And then again he says, you've got a few here you got a few here who have not soiled or defiled their garments. Let me just say this about white here. When he's talking about white, Sardis had this outer garment industry. And wool. And so when he says that uh, you still have a few names in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. To go out in public and soiled garments was, was in a sense a disgrace. You know, I mean, soiled garments and this is is kind of the backdrop of this is the garment industry in Sardis. But yet he says there's a few who have not soiled their garments. In other words, they're still white because he uses the, the, the color white. And they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The white here, and we could trace this through, but let me just say this, the white here. When you get to Revelation chapter nineteen, when we eventually get there, we're going to see the church, the bride of Christ, and she's going to be clothed in fine linen. This fine linen, this white fine linen, and we could trace the language of this—the white garments—and and it's here in Revelation and other places, but we could trace it in other places too. Let me just say this: the white is the righteousness of Christ. R.C. Sproul used to give this illustration. Let me see if this helps kind of make sense of this. R.C. Sproul used to give this illustration. He, he gave a story. He said there was a priest. And he was in his kingdom. And he was, he was going to preach before the king the first time. And he was given his priestly garments. And they were white. Beautiful. White. He's So excited. So nervous. He's going before the king. And he's going to preach in front of the king. He gets his priestly garments and on the way home something happens and they get splashed with muddy water and he goes home and he's looking down the front. It's just mud. It's soiled and he doesn't know what to do. He tries to scrub them, tries to get them clean. And Of course, Sproul goes into much more detail into this story and he can't get them clean and he doesn't know what he's going to do and bam, it's time. He's standing before the king. He walks in and he's got to preach in front of the king. And he knows I can't go in front of the king with soiled garments. But he has no choice. And just a moment, the king is there and there's the priest and all of a sudden, his soiled garments are revealed. And there's a hush. Before anybody could say anything, the door opened. And the king's son... Walked in. Walked up to the priest. Took off his garments. Clothed the priest in his garments. And said, preach on. That's the gospel. You will be given white... Righteousness of Christ. That's the clothing here. You still have a few names here. you got some people hanging on. They've not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white. For they are worthy. Well, the last thing, the last step here in verse 5 is the safety and security that comes in that. He says the one who... Conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. Here comes the white garments again. The one who's overcoming—they're going to be clothed in these white garments. The white garments are not our works. Our works are the soiled garments. It's the white garments. It's the righteousness of Christ that's given to us. That's why Paul, when he's writing in Philippians, talks about how I want to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I don't want to have my own works. I want to be clothed in His righteousness. So the one who overcomes will be clothed in white garments. And I will never. This is interesting. I'm not sure fully what to make of the language here. But he says I will never. Never. It's a double negative. I will never. Never. I will not. Not. Blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father. And before his angels. This security that's in Christ. You will never not be a citizen of heaven. Maybe it was something that, you know, in, in, in the cities that, you know, they kept rolls of people and there was this book and their name was in this book and if they committed a crime, maybe they're blotted out. Maybe the Christians committed crimes, they're blotted out. Maybe Jesus is saying, I will never blot you out. I don't, I don't know if that's it. Maybe it's an Old Testament illusion. We see books. We're going to see books later in Revelation. We're going to see this book of life. But if you go back in the Old Testament, maybe this is an Old Testament illusion. You go all the way back to Exodus, and you look at Deuteronomy, and you see there are places where this language of blotting out occurs, blotting out, and it's always connected with sin. So it seems to be sin get blotted out. But yet, is he saying here that okay, you may be saved, but if you don't wake up? It's pretty stupid. Go to sleep. I'm kicking you out. I'm blotting you out. I I can't be what he's saying because I don't believe that can happen. I don't believe that's the case. I believe that when a person is converted when a person is saved, God preserves them to the end. So I don't think it's a case where you could be Christian and in the book and then one second go to sleep and boom, wake up and find yourself, you're out. Besides, if you take Hebrews... If you were to get out, you could never get back in because Christ would have to die again and he's not going to die again. So there must be something else going on. There must be something else in this warning. When you get to Proverbs, I believe it's about Proverbs chapter 7, this this language of blotting out again, but it's put where the righteous will be remembered and the wicked will never be remembered. Maybe the blotting out has to do with the fact that if, if, if you're blotted out, you're wicked. You are the wicked. And if you're part of the wicked, you will never be remembered. You will never be a citizen of heaven. But if you're part of the righteous, if you are in Christ and you were clothed in His righteousness, you will always be a citizen of heaven. You will not not be blotted out. I don't know, it's strange language here, so maybe it is sort of this Old Testament, uh, allusion to Old Testament, that the wicked will never be remembered. Ever. But the righteous will because we will be with Christ forever. And then he closes again when he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen up. Listen up. I don't want to be asleep. I don't want to have a name that we're alive and yet Christ say of us, But you're dead. I don't want that. I hope you don't want that. I hope we don't settle for that. And the only way that we don't settle for that, the only possible thing that we can do is to keep pushing and keep pushing deeper into the Word of God and let the Spirit of God take the Word of God and keep us going. I'll be honest with you. I don't have the talent, nor the ability, nor the imagination, or the wisdom to do it. I can't keep you awake. But what I can do is put you in here and let this keep you awake. I need it personally. I need it every day. And so do you the right diagnosis, the right treatment, and then the promise of safety and security. Look, don't get rocked to sleep. Don't get rocked to sleep in the cradle of ease and comfort. Don't don't get rocked to sleep living on past, living on past grace, past blessings. Wake up. It's a new day. It's a new challenge. It is. There are things that we face that b- believers, brothers and sisters in Christ 100, 150, 200 years ago, never could have even dreamed up. They never could have even dreamed it up. And it changes every day. It changes every day. Let me ask you just a simple question. Maybe the problem is that uh, the sleepy drowsiness that you've been in is due to the fact that you've never truly been converted to start with. Maybe you've never been awakened the first time. If that's the case, then turn to Christ. There he is. You see him? Grab him. And he'll turn you inside out. And He'll waken you out of your slumber of sin and misery. And it'll be amazing. It will truly be amazing. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this letter. We try to wrestle with what what it means and we try to wrestle with trying to apply it to where we are. And I pray, Father, help us not to be Form over substance. Help us not to just be named that's alive, but yet we're dead. Help us to pay attention. Remember what we've received. We've received the gospel. We've received your word. We've heard it. So help us to keep it. Obey it. Live it. Be strong. All the promises that are there. Knowing that our security and safety is found in Christ. Father if we're here wake us up for not keep us keep us from going to sleep we ask this in Christ's name amen